in now our sixth week of this uh, class on the doctrine of sin. We're going to be continuing today with the subject of original sin. Um, and this is part three of original sin. <clears throat> and um, we'll... Uh, explain in a moment what, what, the, what we're intending to do today. Um, the 19th century Dutch theologian Herman Bavink, as he begins his discussion on original sin, first contrasts it with mere heredity. <clears throat> Nothing that, no, he notes there that certain characteristics, for example, a disposition to certain crimes or even certain diseases, may be passed on from a parent down to their child. And he points out that these characteristics do not spread equally to all of his children or to endless generations of his children. And then he says, original sin, by contrast, has passed to all humans and characterizes all of them to the same extent. It is, after all, nothing other than the sin of Adam himself imputed to all his descendants. It regards every one of them as born with the same guilt, the same impurity, and the same perverseness as, in the case of Adam, made their appearance immediately after his violation of God's commandment. <clears throat> Bavink then points out that the question concerning the essential nature or character of sin is to be distinguished from questions pertaining to its origin and to its transmission. And as we've approached this study, we first addressed the question of sin's essential character, then its origin, and then its transmission. And then we spent two sessions on original sin, and today is the third on original sin, and we'll be going a bit deeper into some things that Will has touched on prior to this. But before we go into that, I want to review uh, and perhaps expand a little on what we've covered to this point. So in our first session, we looked at uh, the question, what is sin? And we saw that sin is any lack of conformity or transgression of the law of God. <clears throat> we discussed the fact that God's law is an expression of His holy moral character, and that it calls for obedience from the hearts, and that it addresses thought and will as well as actions, that the goal <clears throat> of the law is moral conformity to God's holy character as his image bearers and that to violate God's holy law is a personal offense as well as a legal offense and we focused on the truth that the true sinfulness of sin is seen precisely in that it is an offense against God. In the second week we looked at the origin of sin first seeing the state and condition of man 
and the world in which he was created, that it was very good, a perfect paradise where every need was provided for and many blessings beside. They were free from sin. They enjoyed righteous relationships with God and each other. They lacked no good thing. They enjoyed true shalom. And we discussed the fact that sin originated in the angelic realm and that the chief of these fallen angels came to tempt Adam and Eve to sin. And we saw then something of Satan's character and discovered his methods. And we discussed the sin itself that was committed there as well as its effects and its consequences personally, interpersonally, and cosmically. <clears throat> I want to quote again uh, from Bavink in regard to this first sin. He says, The circumstances under which the first sin was committed by angels and humans, rather than extenuating the guilt, tends rather to aggravate it. It was done against God's express and clear command by a person created in God's image in a matter of little consequence that hardly required any self-denial and very likely soon after the command had been received. It has become the source of all iniquities and horrors, all the calamities and misfortunes, all the sickness and death suffered and committed in the world since. From this source have sprung all those tears. The sin of Adam cannot be a minor thing. It must have been a fundamental reversal of all relationships. A revolution by which the creature detached himself from and positioned himself against God. An uprising, a fall in the true sense, which was decisive for the whole world and took it in a direction and on a road away from God toward wickedness and corruption, an unspeakably great sin. This is how seriously, he says, the first sin has been regarded in the Christian church and in Christian theology. <clears throat> now, in the last uh, three weeks, we have looked at the relationship of Adam's sin to the rest of mankind. And first, Pastor Ron focused on the fact that, and the means by which, Adam's sin comes to affect every one of his descendants. And we addressed what the Catechism asks in question 16. And there it says, Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And the answer is, the covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. So we discussed there that Adam <clears throat> was a public or a representative person as federal covenantal head of all humanity. And in that capacity, he stood for all of us, and in his fall, we all fell with him and in him in that first sin. Thus, his sin and the guilt of his sin is imputed to all of his descendants, 
who had their natural source in Adam, who originated sin in humanity. The last two weeks, uh, Will has been discussing original sin, addressing not so much the mode of imputation of sin, or how it is that Adam's sin is made ours, but the consequences of that sin and its imputation to us. First, that we are made truly guilty of that first sin, and that we are thoroughly corrupted by that first sin. The catechism question and answer put it this way, wherein consists the sinfulness of that state whereunto man fell? And the answer is, the sinfulness of that state whereunto man fell consists of the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want or lack of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions that proceed from it. Now this is true of Adam after the fall. He was held guilty. He lacked the righteousness that he had at first. And his whole nature was corrupted. And when we speak of original sin, we are saying that this is also true of all of his posterity. Everyone descended from him by ordinary generation. We are all held guilty of Adam's sin. We do not come into being with original righteousness, but rather our whole nature is corrupt and defiled and issues only in sin. And this is original sin. So again, how is Adam's sin made ours? It's made ours by imputation Adam's transgression is not, as the Pelagians hold, hurtful to his posterity only by imitation, but it is by imputation uh, that we are guilty of Adam's sin. And secondly, Adam's sin is ours by propagation. Not only is the guilt of Adam's sin imputed to us, but the depravity and corruption of his nature is transmitted to us as pollution in a fountain carries out to pollute the entire stream. This is original sin, and the reality of it is seen in David's confession in Psalm 51.5, where he says, In sin did my mother conceive me. So there there is something both privative and positive in original sin. Privative in that we lack the righteousness that was original to human nature at creation, and positive in that it has actively bent us, defiled us, distorted us, and made us prone to all evil. For a moral creature such as man is, there can be no neutral ground in regard to righteousness. The one who lacks righteousness is not morally neutral, but is by nature morally evil. And to be morally evil is to be defiled and corrupt in every faculty. Sin has poisoned the spring of our nature, making every part and the sum of our thoughts and actions impure. Now, I want to say this, and uh, Will mentioned last week as well, 
we must remember that human nature is not in its final essence sinful. That is, humanity before the fall as created was not sinful. And likewise, Christ took on a human nature but not a fallen nature or a sinful nature. And we will one day be without sin and be truly human. So sin is not essential to being human. The fact that human nature in its ultimate sense is not essentially sinful is what makes redemption possible. It's what makes restoration possible. That Christ can restore what was lost and perfect it eternally is our hope. But sin has become something of a second nature to us. And not simply as a habit or as a practiced skill. It is as inseparable from man in his fallen state as is his mind or his will. What original sin means for the man in Adam is inherent corruption and absolute moral inability. Thomas Watson says, Original sin has become co-natural to us. A man by nature cannot but sin. Though there were no devil to tempt, no bad examples to imitate, yet there is such an innate principle in him that he cannot forbear sinning. So in original sin there is an, an aversion to good. Man naturally desires to be happy and yet he opposes that which would promote his happiness. He has a disgust for holiness. He hates the things of God and has no interest in being reformed. Since we fell from God we have no mind to return to him. So it is an aversion from good, but is also a propensity to evil. And we see this very clearly in a number of scriptures. I want to ask if somebody would read these Ephesians 4.19 and Jeremiah 9.5 for us. Go ahead, Lucy. Okay, and one more. Okay, so this is um, <clears throat> the depiction of what man is like in his fallen condition, and we need to understand that man's constituent nature has not improved since that time when God destroyed the earth. So as we've said, original sin affects the entirety of man's being. There is no part left untouched and undefiled. Original sin has depraved the intellectual part of man. The mind is darkened. Ever since Adam ate of the tree of knowledge and his eyes were opened, we lost our eyesight and became blind. The mind is Ignorant, it is in error, it is misguided. 
We do not judge things rightly. We call evil good and we call good evil. In our sinful minds, there is much pride and disdain and prejudice and vain reasoning. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It's unwilling and unable to submit to Him. Original sin has also defiled the heart, as we see in Jeremiah 17, 9, and Ecclesiastes 9, 3. If I can have somebody read those. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ecclesiastes 9, 3. The hearts of the children of men are full of of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. fallen man's heart is sinful it is desperately sick and um, it is beyond uh, is beyond remedy by man's own doing Um, we also see that uh, it is corrupted the affections our affections are set on wrong objects our love is set on sin, our joy on the creature rather than the creator. We have impure lustings rather than holy longings. And in regard to the will, there is a fixed opposition to God, of rebellion against God. The sinner crosses God's will to do his own will. There is a deep-rooted enmity in the will against holiness. It is like an iron sinew that refuses to bend to God. And this original sin in all of its defilement clings steadfastly to us. John Owen states that it adheres as a depraved principle unto our minds in darkness and vanity, unto our affections in sensuality, unto our will in loathing of, and aversion from that which is good. Okay, so now that um, more or less has been uh, review and introduction. And now for the rest of our time, we're going to take a closer look at uh, sin in relation to the will. <clears throat> and I'll tell you that as I studied the material for this class, I found it to be the most extensive in terms of uh, just the sheer number of pages in the material that we're working with. Um, And at the same time, it is the most difficult, detailed, and demanding of any of the material we've covered and probably will cover. In truth, it's probably more than we should have uh, considered for this class, but uh, I guess that's my fault. Um, But that said, I tried to do my best to trim it down and to simplify it and hopefully uh, to make it meaningful and helpful to you. Um, If I fail in that, then uh, talk to me. I'll be glad to give you the relevant material and let you figure it out. (laughs) Um, Just kidding. So, well, as indicated in your notes, uh, we'll be looking at original sin as voluntary inclination, original sin and moral inability, and then moral inability and moral obligation. 
So then, uh, let's consider first original sin as voluntary inclination. <clears throat> as I said, with this we'll be treading some difficult terrain conceptually, but it's important to understand how it is that men and women like us, born with original sin, can be guilty of sin, not just by the imputation of Adam's sin and guilt, but guilty of sin because we have inherited a corrupt nature from Adam, a corrupt nature by which we are positively inclined to sin and by which we cannot but sin, and a nature from which all our actual sins flow. We will see how our actual sin flowing from an inherited corrupt nature are nevertheless our responsibility because they flow from a voluntary, willful inclination to sin. And so we are justly punishable. <clears throat> and as a necessary corollary to this, um, to our being responsible for our sin as voluntary inclination, we will see how it is that God is not responsible uh, or the responsible author of sin and that he is not unjust in punishing us for our sin. <clears throat> in the late 4th century, a Pelagian bishop, Julian, raised some questions designed to indicate that man is justly responsible only for that which he freely chooses, and that he cannot freely choose and thus be held responsible if by nature he cannot help but sin. You remember a few weeks ago, Pastor Ron discussed this and explained that uh, Pelagians do not believe in original sin. They do not believe that Adam's guilt is imputed or that his corrupt nature is propagated to his progeny. Rather, they believe that every man who becomes a sinner and fails and falls does so personally and individually from an act of perfectly free will and from a pure and uncorrupted nature. Augustine, addressing Julian's position, states, says Julian, if sin is from will, then it is an evil will that produces sin. But if from nature, then an evil nature produces sin. I reply, I quickly reply that sin is from will. Then he asks, whether original, or whether original sin is also from will? I answer, certainly original sin also, because this was transmitted from the will of the first man. <clears throat> Here Augustine answers that original sin is itself the result of the free act of the will of Adam, and that all subsequent acts of sin are volitional acts of the will. The position that original sin is voluntary inclination has been maintained with Augustine by Reformed theologians throughout the centuries. For instance, Francis Turretin defines sin as an inclination, action, or omission opposing God's law. Zecharias Ursinus, the primary author of the Heidelberg Catechism, speaking of the corruption of nature in infants, says, 
that infants want or lack not the faculty of will, and though in act they do not will sin, yet they will it by inclination. Rivetus asserts that concupiscence is voluntary inclination, and another theologian says that the movement of wrong desire in a man is a voluntary act, and it is sin, even when it moves before the reason has had time to exercise its judgment. So the idea in all of these, and we'll see some more, is that the disposition or the inclination of the will towards sin is itself sin, um, and that, that man is agreeable, sinful man is agreeable to that inclination. It's a voluntary inclination. It's an act of his will with which he agrees and, and, um, and willingly goes with. The Puritan Stephen Charnock says, There is no sin but is in some sort voluntary. Voluntary in the root or voluntary in the branch. Voluntary by immediate act of the will or voluntary by a general and natural inclination of the will. John Owen says, Original sin as, as originating sin, I left out the, the Latin here. <clears throat> original sin as originating sin was voluntary in Adam, and as it is originated in us, is in our wills habitually and not against them in any actings of it or them. The effects of it in the coining of sin and in the thoughts of men's hearts are all voluntary. John Howe, the Scottish theologian, says, We must understand that an evil inclination or a depraved nature is that which does first violate the law of God. He explains that the law of God is aimed primarily at the heart of man so that the empoisoned nature of man the malignity of the heart and soul is, is that which makes the first and principal breach of God's law or the, upon the law of God. So that it's the will, the inclination, which is the first act, action against God's will and God's law. So William Shedd concludes, it must be remembered that sin in its entire history is inclination and self-determination. While it is true that the first sin of Adam is the, is the fall of the human race and decides its eternal destiny apart from redemption, it must not be supposed that after the first act of Adam, all self-determination ceases. Original sin as corruption of nature in each individual is only the continuation of the first inclining away from God. The self-determination of the human will from God to the creature, turning from God to the creature as an ultimate end, did not stop short with the act in Eden, but goes right onward in every individual of Adam's posterity until regeneration reverses it.
<clears throat> he then compares this ongoing corruption, this voluntary inclination away from God, to the role of the will in sanctification. And he says, as progressive sanctification, I don't know if I have this, I don't. As progressive sanctification is the continuation of the holy self-determination of the human will, which begins at regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So the progressive deprivation, depravation of the natural man is the continuation of that sinful self-determination of the human will, which began in Adam's transgression. <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards uh, had much to say about this, writing extensively in both his treatise on original sin and in his most difficult book on the freedom of the will. And uh, we won't go into uh, analysis of his thought and his complicated argument, but we will note a couple of salient points. One is Edwards taught that volitions or the acts of the will necessarily agree with the inclination of the will and have no power over it. That is, a will must act in line with its inclination. And man cannot will to change his inclination. A will inclined to evil must invariably choose evil and it cannot change its own willing. <clears throat> but Edwards also taught that the inclination itself is free and not necessitated agency. In the instance of a holy inclination, it was either created or recreated by God. In the instance of a sinful inclination, it was self-originated in the fall of Adam. And Shedd points out that the inclination of the will in both its free spontaneity, I'm sorry, that the inclination of the will is free spontaneity in both instances. In the former, it results from God working in the will to will. And here we're reminded of Philippians 2.13, where it says, for God works in us both to will and to do according to his good purposes. Uh, so it, is, it results from God working in the will to will. And in the other case, it is the will in solitary self-motion and self-determination toward evil. The term original then, when applied to sin, implies that it originates with man. But the very same term when applied to righteousness implies that it originates with God, who is the fountain of all righteousness. God creates a holy inclination or disposition whenever he creates a holy will in man or angel, and he recreates a holy inclination whenever he regenerates a sinner. Since God is the ultimate author of holiness in both the creation and the regeneration of the will, to him alone belongs all the glory for it. And on the contrary, God cannot be the author of an evil 
disposition, or inclination. Man is the sole author here, and thus man deserves all the blame and all the condemnation. <clears throat> and this is seen clearly when we consider, for instance, King David in Psalm 51, when he is brought to a sense of the wickedness of his heart or sinful disposition, he doesn't in any way blame this disposition on God as though he were the creator or the author of it. Rather, he imputes this inbred depravity to himself. He acknowledges that the demerit of it and the guilt in it is absolute. <clears throat> it is the result from the creature's agency only. He says there that he derives it from his mother and not from his maker. But on the other hand, when David rejoiced over his own holy disposition as well as that of the people of Israel when they were giving to honor God in the building of the temple, his words are very different. And we see it in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, where David says, But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. So here we see David attributing all of the good intention, all of the good willing, and all of the good action to God himself. <clears throat> if this evil will, this voluntary inclination to sin, did not arise from man, he could not be justly punished for it. It is not only the nature of the thing that makes it damnable, but also the origin of it. And thus, and this evil inclination of the will arose from man's own self-determination in opposition to God and is thus justly condemned. Now, before we move to the next point, briefly I want to uh, point out that it is uh, important to distinguish original sin from indwelling sin. Distinguish original sin from indwelling sin. The latter, indwelling sin, is the remainder of original sin in the regenerate person. Shedd makes this observation about indwelling sin. <clears throat> Quote, It is not, like original sin, a dominant and increasing principle in the believer, but is a subjugated and diminishing one. And then he utilizes a musical reference to illustrate this by saying, indwelling sin is the diminuendo movement of sin. It has a dying fall. Original sin is the crescendo movement. Luther uses a different image to illustrate this. He says, original sin after regeneration is like a wound that begins to heal, though it be a wound, yet it is in the course of healing, though it still runs and is sore. So original sin remains in the Christian until they die, yet itself is mortified and continually dying. 
Its head is crushed to pieces so that it cannot condemn us. Indwelling sin is called the law in our members. Not the law of our members, but the law in our members. While original sin is called the law of sin and death from which believers have been set free. Now let's uh, look at uh, original sin and moral inability. And as we consider the issue of moral inability, and we'll have to do so quickly, I want to look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 25. And this answers the same question as the Shorter Catechism, question 18. Um, So this is called the Larger Catechism, not only because it has more questions, but because the answers are more expansive. And here, in question 25... The same question, wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell? And the answer is, the sinfulness of that estate unto which man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions. So you can see that this expands on the issue of the corruption that is original sin, and here it's described as that, whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all that is spiritually good, wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually. And we'll focus specifically then on the fact that the inability and opposition of the will in original sin refers to all that is, quote, spiritually good. So what is meant by spiritually good? Well, ultimately, spiritual good refers to holiness as expressed in supreme love for God and equal love for God. Of man. So this statement in the confession is that sinful man with an apostate will cannot in and of himself love God with all his soul and love his neighbors himself. He cannot manufacture such an affection in his heart. He cannot originate within his will a disposition for that which is spiritually good. Now we should note that This does not mean that fallen man is unable to be moral in any sense or that he is unable to do actions which appear to be moral. Rather, it means that sinful man cannot do what is spiritually good and that natural man is unable to be holy and spiritual. In Romans 2.14, Paul tells us that some unregenerate pagans do by nature things that are required by the law. This does not mean that they obey the law fully or perfectly, but rather that there are things that are required by the law which they outwardly uphold because the law is written upon their hearts. So there is and can be a general morality which is not the expression of supreme love for God 
and perfect obedience to his law. Again, Paul makes this plain when he declares in Romans 3.19 that every mouth will be shut and the whole world will be held accountable to God. And when he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and in 3.23, in and then when he says in 3.10 that there is none righteous, no, not one. So this righteousness uh, or this outward morality that he speaks of in 2.14 that pagans can hold to is not this spiritual good that God demands. <clears throat> so again, in regard to some of the moral, some of the more natural affections that remain even in fallen man's nature, we can list at least four areas where we see inclinations and, and affections that are good and that, uh, that are attractive, even if they're not spiritually good and of the nature of religious affections. And the first of these natural affections would be family affections. The love of the parent for the child and of the child for the parents or of brothers and sisters for one another. These are natural and good and right and can often lead to significant acts of self-denial and self-sacrifice. But such self-sacrifice in the natural man is not done for God. It's not aimed at His glory and it's not seeking obedience to His will. Family affection may and often does exist without any supreme love of God. It can even lead to disobedience to God. To be spiritually good, such affections must be subordinated to the claims of Christ, or they will become idolatrous. As Jesus says in Matthew 10:37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me so in addition to family affections there are there are social affections man can be deeply interested in his fellow man and oftentimes performs great acts of self-sacrifice a fireman risks his life to save someone he's never met Police officers put themselves at risk to protect the life and property of others. Many individual acts of sacrifice, service, and consideration could be named. But all of these can be done without any consideration of God, much less with God's glory as their greatest goal. Thirdly, there are civil affections. Man is deeply interested in issues of politics, of the good of his nation and the country where he lives and in which he was born, to which he belongs. This patriotism or this love of country, like social and family affections, are present in the unregenerate as well as the regenerate. And they may be accompanied by atheism and unbelief and immorality, so in themselves they are not spiritually good. Fourthly, we can mention uh, the aesthetic feeling that people have, which is not spiritual or religious. 
um, a love for what is beautiful in art or music or literature has nothing of holy virtue in itself. Good taste is not piety and religion. If it terminates on that which is finite and temporal, it is earthly and unspiritual. All of these things are good, but none in themselves are spiritually good. And we can say in regard to all of these that apart from the common grace of God and his restraining power over man's sinful hearts, even these natural affections would be utterly overcome by sin. So in the statement in the Catechism, the inability is concerned with the inclination of the will. It says man is indisposed to all spiritual good and inclined to all spiritual evil. And we see from this that the cause of the inability is in the action and state of the will or the voluntary faculty. It is moral or willing inability. The second Helvetic confession says, for the will is a slave to sin, not unwillingly, but willingly. So the will is a willing slave. Uh, That's how we have to understand it. The slavery is no less slavery because it is willing slavery. And the inability is true moral inability. He is really, and in the full sense of the word, impotent. It is voluntary in distinction from it being created. Man's impotence to good does not arise from the agency of God's creation, but from the agency of man's apostasy. The sinful inclination is the abiding self-determination in the human will. Its origin is due to an act of freedom in Adam, and its continuance is due to the unceasing self-determination of every individual of his posterity. Each individual man prolongs and perpetuates in himself the evil inclination of will that was started in Adam. Additionally, a disposition in the will intensifies and confirms free voluntary action instead of weakening and destroying it. Hence, the bondage of the will to sinful inclination does not destroy either the voluntariness of it or the responsibility of it. The enslaved will is a self-determining faculty. The bondage of sin is a responsible and guilty bondage because it proceeds from the self and not from God. So the moral inability of sinners then is the inability to incline rightly from a wrong state of the will. To convert itself into a holy inclination. The fallen man already already is sinfully inclined. The sinful inclination is moral spontaneity or self-determination to an ultimate end. So from the standpoint and starting point of evil, it is impossible to incline or self-determine to God 
the sinner may exert volitions or acts of the will and to make resolutions in hope of producing a different inclination, but they are absolute failures in that a holy inclination cannot be originated by this method. So this is what we mean when we speak of moral inability. Now, we're going to look here in the next few minutes at moral inability and moral obligation. And the question here is, does moral inability obviate or nullify moral obligation? If man is currently unable to obey, is he still obliged to obey? So we must consider first then, what was the state in which man was created? If we are to see where his obligation is grounded. And we understand then that man's obligation to perfect and perpetual obedience is founded on the holiness and the full power of his obedience. That is, that condition in which he was originally endowed by his creator. To put it simply, because God made man in his own image, he was obliged to sinless obedience. Moral obligation rested upon his natural and moral ability to obey. Adam's will was not neutral or without any inclination, but was properly inclined to his creator, though not unchangeably so. God did not require him to manufacture a holy inclination, but to maintain that which he was given. In the beginning of his moral existence, man's ability must equal obligation, and it did indeed equal it. Stephen Charnock says this, The law was not above man's strength when he was possessed of original righteousness, though it be above man's strength since he was stripped of original righteousness. The command was dated before man had contracted his impotency, when he had a power to keep it as well as to break it. Had it been enjoined to man only after the fall and not before, he might have had a better pretense to excuse himself because of the impossibility of it, yet he would not have sufficient excuse since the impossibility did not result from the nature of the law, but from the corrupted nature of the creature. And here he quotes Romans 8.3, it was weak through the flesh, but it was promulgated when man had a strength proportioned to the commands of it. Since man's obligation was founded then upon the Creator's good gifts to him, it therefore cannot be destroyed by any subsequent action of the creature simply because man has squandered those good gifts. Turton says, God's commandments are not the measure of our powers, but the rules of our duty. They do not teach what we are now able to do, but what we ought to do, and what we were able to do at one time. And in in the Heidelberg Catechism, in question 9, asks, Does not God then wrong man by requiring of him in his law 
that which he cannot perform? And answers, no. For God so made man that he could perform it, but man through the instigation of the devil by willful disobedience deprived himself and all his posterity of this power. So man lost this ability of obedience by his own voluntary action, and this loss being his own doing in no way releases him from the obligation to obedience. <clears throat> if ability is weakened by an act of self-determination, obligation is not weakened. If ability is totally destroyed by self-determination, obligation is not destroyed. Man's total inability is not an original or created inability. It came by his act, not by God's. Uh, Anselm, the, the mid medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury says, Man's inability to restore what he owes to God, an inability brought upon himself, does not excuse man from paying the satisfaction due to justice. For the result of sin cannot excuse the sin itself. The result of sin cannot excuse the sin. The inability being the result of sin does not obviate the obligation to obedience. <clears throat> The diminution, diminution of ability has not diminished the obligation. And think about it, because if this were the case, then sin would reward the sinner by delivering him altogether from the claims of the law. So the obligation remains. Man made in God's image is obligated to glorify God in all of his life and in every way in perfect obedience to his law and the inability that comes by the fall does not change that obligation. <clears throat> now, quickly then in closing, I want to read um, these following propositions which really summarize the substance of the Augustinian Calvinistic doctrine of inability. The first is, there is a free self-determination or inclining to evil in the sinner's will. Second, there is an inability of the sinner to self-determine or decline to good that results from his self-determining or inclining to evil. This ability is culpable because it is the product of the sinner's agency. Three, the Holy Spirit re-originates self-determination or inclination to good in the sinner's will. Four, the sinner's will is wholly, not partially, dependent upon the Divine Spirit for a holy self-determination or inclination. And fifth, God has elected an immense multitude that no man can number to be the subjects of his regenerating power. So that, um, that summarizes what, what I've tried to communicate in, in this hour. Um, and in the next minute or two, does anybody have any questions?
Okay, that was perfectly clear. Everybody got every word of that. Good. Um, think about what I went through trying to uh, <laughs> study this and, and get, get it together. Um, it's a lot, there's a lot there. It's, it's very deep. It's very rich. There's a lot of arguments behind a lot of the assertions that were made, which wasn't able to bring and present. But the substance summarized at the end is really what we need to understand. Um, <clears throat> every sinner is guilty um, by imputation of Adam's sin, but also as a corrupted sinner who is willingly inclined to evil, that our only hope is not that we could in any way change our will to will something different, but we're wholly dependent upon the Spirit's sovereign work in our lives to regenerate us, as it says here, to re-originate a self-determination to holiness, and, um, and that uh, we live continually and completely dependent upon the Spirit in uh, increasing that desire and its effects, and that God is working <clears throat> to bring an immeasurable number of people to Himself by rescuing His enemies who are bent against Him and inclining them to Himself that we can forever rejoice in His presence. So, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Our Father in Heaven, we...